Today we turn in God's word to the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. There's an outline as well on page 4 that has been rearranged a bit. We welcome those who are visiting with us in person, online. We are dealing with matters of marriage in this sermon series. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. We pick up at the end of the song. Hear now God's word. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a God of love. Being perfectly loving from all eternity, the Father and the Son have delighted to share their love and joy with and through the Holy Spirit. And being triune, God is a sharing God, as Michael Reeve says. Love is not for keeping, but for spreading. The eternally beloved Son comes to us to share with us, his people, the very love the Father has lavished on him. He comes to bring us into the life that is his, that we might be brought before God, not just as those who are forgiven, but as those who are righteous and as those who can cry out, Abba, Father. God is beautiful, desirable, and life-giving because he is the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And loved ones, we don't really understand what love is without reference to God. We have to start there. In order to make progress in all of our relationships, those who are married, those who are single, widowed, divorced, those who have grieved the death of a spouse in perhaps recent years, Wherever our relationships are right now, we make progress only when we begin to understand the love of God. And to do a sermon series on marriage without the song of songs is like trying to play baseball without a bat. It just doesn't work. We've got to go here. And so today, I want us to see the beauty of this picture of the covenant of marriage in the song. This is teaching us today that marriage is mutual. It is exclusive and yet it must be tended. Marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman instituted by God, regulated by his commandments, blessed by Jesus. First, we see love in context. Who wrote this book, children? There's some debate about it. If you look at verse 1, I'm with those who say, yes, it was written by Solomon. 
It was one of his 1,005 songs that Kings talks about, perhaps the best of his songs. He also wrote 3,000 Proverbs. Solomon, this is the king of Israel, as you remember, children. When was this perhaps taking place then? Well, as you look at Song of Songs 6, verse 4, it tells us, You are beautiful as tears of my love. Not exactly the line that you lead with in your Valentine's Day card. I tried it with my wife last night, and she kind of looked at me like, What are you talking about? Tears of my love. But it does tell us about the time in which this took place. Tirzah was in the northern kingdom. After the exile, 722, when the kingdom was split in two, Tirzah was the bad guys. But at this point, they're the good guys. So it's reminding us that this song was written nearly 3,000 years ago. Kids, you're reading a piece of poetry that is really old. It's love poetry. It's not historical narrative. It's not prophecy. And it is not allegory. Poetry is not linear. It's passionate. It's experiential. It's evocative speech. Metaphors and images and phrases, they stir your imagination. They heighten your emotions. They are aesthetically pleasing. It's passionate. The main voice here is from a woman. The order of the Hebrew Bible, interestingly, is Proverbs, which ends in chapter 31, talking of the woman, Ruth, Song of Solomon. It's talking of a strong, godly woman. This is a poetic love song, but it is also wisdom literature. It's about romantic love, a woman who is longing for a man. We see that in verse 2. And yet there is perhaps no book other than Revelation in the whole Bible that has had more different interpretations on it. Keep that in mind as I humbly present to you what I think is going on here. Some people say this is about Solomon and the unnamed Shulamite woman, that that's what this love is about. The Shulamite then could be his first wife, Nema, the mother of Rehoboam, his first love. I don't think that's what's happening here. Sinclair Ferguson and Miles Van Pelt and others say there's a third person here, a man who's in competition with Solomon to marry this Shulamite woman. The setting, then, is the royal harem of Solomon. You read about the daughters of Jerusalem. They are representing the virgins taken into Solomon's harem for preparation and training. So the woman in the song has been taken there to be one of his concubines. Throughout the song, then, you see the woman has a choice between folly and wisdom. Folly would be to take to be taken in as a concubine, have a life of luxury. Solomon, the richest, smartest, wealthiest dude of all time. The song talks in chapter 6, verse 8, of his 60 queens and 80 concubines. That would tell us this is earlier on in Solomon's time as a king. Because later on, we read, he has 700 wives, 300 concubines, and loved ones. This is evil in the sight of the Lord. This is what led to the division of the kingdom, north and south. So that's one choice, folly, be one of the concubines. Or she can be married to one man, as Genesis 2 says, the way of wisdom. 
This book is about romantic, intimate love, about making wise decisions, about the goodness of marriage. But it's also a picture of the love of Christ for his church. The main message of the book, as Miles Van Pelt says, is in these verses we read. Here's what he says. This book is about the commitment and covenant of marriage that should be rock solid and, don't stop there, don't stop there, the intimacy of marriage that should be white hot. If you can sustain a rock solid and white hot marriage by the Holy Spirit, this type of love endures hardship, resists temptation, promotes satisfaction and wholeness. Not perfectly in this life. We're sinners. But it's teaching us about the invincibility of marital love. Second, this love is affectionate. It's full of protection and provision. Look at verse 5 now in chapter 8. Who is this woman? Well, it's the young bride. The beloved is her shepherd boy, not Solomon. They're coming up from the wilderness, a time of testing. It should remind you of Exodus and the trials God's people went through. And they're coming back home to a kind of promised land, milk and honey and wine and fruit. Picture returning from your honeymoon. And it says she is leaning on her beloved. Picture her head on the side of his chest, a sign of affection, closeness, security. This is non-sexual touch, romance, a reminder to us, husbands and wives, and those who long to be married, enjoy each other. Enjoy non-sexual touch, a back rub, dancing together, lying in bed just talking together, praying together, crying together, just being quiet together. Life is short. Laugh together. Be goofy and silly together. Don't take yourself so seriously. Laugh at yourself. God gave you in your spouse a gift to be enjoyed together to glorify God. She leans upon him for affection and protection and provision. Third, love is a seal. I bumped that point up. Look at verse 6. This is perhaps the most important verse in the entire book. Love demands to possess its beloved and to be possessed in a unique way. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. What's that about? Seals in the Old Testament are associated with covenants, ownership. So a seal in that day would be a metal piece of stone that's elaborate, hung around the neck, It was your most valuable possession. It was worth a lot, and it would be your possession, kind of like a driver's license, an identification point. You read about the breaking of seals in Daniel. Do you remember that, kids? The king had that seal over the lion's den, and if someone would break that seal, they would be under curse and judgment and death. Remember the scrolls in Revelation. Only Jesus could open the seal on the scroll. 
Haggai 2 talks about God's secure love for Haggai. The world is shaking, it says. God is shaking heaven and earth. Judgment is coming, but Zerubbabel will be set safe as a seal by the Lord. Marriage is like a seal, exclusive, lifelong. This is talking about the emotional aspect of it and the physical aspect of protection. The seal on the arm could be like a wedding ring today. The wife is saying, I want you to protect me. I want you to love me. I want the loyalty of your heart. I want your affection. The bar is high, loved ones. The spouse, husband and wife, should leave a lasting imprint on each other, touching the deepest core of our beings. And so I ask myself, as I ask you men, do you nurture, cherish, and protect your wife? This is daily things, like washing the dishes, listening to her as she wants to talk, without the TV on, without needing to talk yourself, listening to her talk about the troubles of life, her pain, her sorrow, her ache, her difficulty with friends, taking care of the children so she can go to a Bible study, taking the lead and saying, we need help in our marriage. We need a godly couple, maybe an older couple in this church, maybe an older couple somewhere else, maybe a marriage counselor, to speak truth into our marriage. Colleen and I have benefited from wise marriage counseling from older couples that can look at life in a way that we, in our young age, haven't been able to see. One way to love your wife is that. Fourth, love is awakened at the proper time. In the middle of verse 5, the woman is gazing at an apple tree. We have a 10-year-old and kids younger. So uh, believe me, whatever I'm saying now, I have to explain to our own kids who are at difficult ages. I don't want to embarrass, but I also don't want to skip over what this is talking about. So I encourage you to talk to your kids in appropriate ways. Sexual innuendo, metaphor, euphemism, is found all over this book. Now poetry is ambiguous, and it's evocative, and it's discreet. Do you notice that? The apple tree is a euphemism for the sexual union they enjoyed after they were married. So the marriage is consummated. Solomon has been rejected. The world talks all about this stuff, loved ones. You know it. Our kids are seeing it. They're hearing it when they're with friends, whether it's at school or as they listen to the radio or podcasts or billboards. It's all over the place. There's a crisis in our culture when it comes to sexuality gender identity, critical postmodern philosophies, the sexual revolution, the normalization of transgenderism, where people say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. People not wanting to get married, not wanting to have kids, not wanting to stay married. The world is broken, it is messed up, and we have the opportunity as a church to speak the truth in love. The answer is not to retreat. The answer is not to go into a hole and not talk about these things. The Song of Songs addresses them. We must not be silent. Here's Van Pelt. Rock-solid commitment makes white-hot intimacy possible. 
white-hot intimacy protects, fuels, and supports rock-solid commitments. Traditionally, the church has talked about the rock-solid commitment, and we should because it's right there in the Bible. The culture doesn't talk about that. However, the church has done little, he says, if anything, to encourage, promote, or celebrate the heat of marital intimacy. The world talks about that all the time, unashamedly, in a perverse way. But both are important. Rock-solid commitments creating the context for the heat and the romance and the joy. If we separate them, both of them become weak and actually endanger the covenant partners. What we have here is the closest thing to the Garden of Eden in the Bible. It's a spring setting. It's Passover. The longing for this union is there in the book. And the book is countercultural. It's saying sexuality is to be enjoyed in a relationship defined by God. Covenantal. Monogamous. Heterosexual. Any other definition will destroy a society. You see it in the Bible. The corruption of marriage always brings God's judgment. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is attacking neo-paganism, which says the spiritual is good, the body is bad. The song speaks truth. Look at what else it says in chapter 2, verse 7. The woman says, do not stir up or awaken love that pleases. Remember the context? Solomon is trying to woo this woman. The daughters of Jerusalem are trying to provoke her to join Solomon's harem. Women, you have known men like Solomon. I hope in the past. These are guys who know all the right words to say. They will flatter you. They know what they want, and they know how to get what they want. The song is giving wisdom to you, young girls, married women, to resist the dangerous and deadly temptations of a man like Solomon. He wants to offer you luxury and ease and prestige, but he does not have the mind of Christ. Not in this section. A word to those who are single. Don't awaken love before it's time. Don't stir these things up. Don't pursue this intimacy. It's like an explosive drug. It's intoxicating and inebriating, and you ought not get it going until the proper time, which is marriage. Much prayer. We need the Holy Spirit here. You don't want to be married to Sam one day and in intimacy be thinking about Solomon. You don't want to be married to Jill and be thinking about Jasmine. A word to women and men. We do not, and by God's grace aren't, aren't, to be married to someone with a wandering eye. There is no place for pornography anywhere, anytime, for any purpose. It kills love. It is demeaning to women and to men. It is crippling to marriage. Why is this? Because romantic love should be protected. Sex is not an evil thing made permissible by marriage. It's a good thing protected by marriage. It's not the result of sin or the fall. It's meant to be enjoyed by husband and wife. And here they waited until the proper time. They are remembering the first time they were together. And that's a good thing for you to do, loved ones. Memory is a good and godly thing as a Christian to 
recall God's faithfulness to you and to your spouse. And yet, sexual intimacy is one of the great unspoken crises in many Christian marriages. Too often Christians have either a utopian view of marriage, this kind of ideal of perfection, and when it comes to intimacy, they don't want to talk about it. And they don't want to preach on the Song of Songs, which is very true. This book is very rarely preached on. I talked to someone last night that I know and respect highly that kind of had big eyes thinking about the Song of Solomon, like, whoa, I read through it and I didn't know what to do with it. (laughs) People don't, don't want to talk about it. And yet, as Kevin DeYoung says, if you find a marriage that is struggling, often there is something about the sexual life that's bad, either a cause or an effect. If you find a healthy marriage, there is often an intimate life that's enjoyable, frequent, fresh, celebrated. One of the quickest ways for a marriage to be in trouble is for one spouse to deprive the other or lose interest in the other. I'm not talking about illness, pregnancy, childbirth, disability, old age, and all the challenges of life. I'm not talking about that right here. Those things are real. Song of Solomon 7, I am my beloved's, his desire is for me. Loved ones, that is self-giving love. The husband and wife don't come together to take, but to give. Not for selfish reasons, but to heighten the experience by giving and serving the other. Biblical intimacy is not about conquest, seduction, coercion, control, or consumption. It's not about taking what you want. No dominance, no one is subjugated. It's mutual love, respect, understanding in an exclusive, intense, permanent, joyful covenant, delighting in each other because we're we're made, body and soul, to connect to each other. And yet many struggle here. Some may need to repent. You may need to talk to your wife and say, forgive me, or your husband. I've been too selfish in these areas of intimacy. I've been putting too much pressure on you with this. I've been giving too little effort and time to it. I've made you feel unwanted. I haven't paid attention to the wonderful things about you. I've taken you for granted. I've fallen into the old trap of once you catch the bus, you stop running. I'm sorry, forgive me. I can't remember the last time I told you that you were beautiful. That must hurt you. Men repeatedly affirm the beauty of your wife. The song does it. We need to repent, husbands and wives, perhaps of causing emotional pain. We might not know it, but our spouse might feel unloved, unwanted, undesired, uncherished, empty, hurting. Loved ones, talk and pray with each other about it. Find someone to talk to. The goal here is not shame. The goal is not guilt. The goal is not manipulation. It is that the love of Christ would bear fruit in our marriages. The goal is that we would not be ashamed that we're sexual beings. God made you that way. Maybe you're struggling with same-sex attraction. Maybe it's another form of fornication. Come and talk to us as a church. This is a safe place to talk to me, to the elders. God has put you in a church that our journey might be together 
to be more like Jesus. Verse 5 goes on. Now, this is poetry. Your mother. Do you think, what's going on? (laughs) Your mother. Now, she's talking about her beloved's mother, the shepherd boy. She's basically saying, God, in his providence, brought you to me. Your mother gave birth to you. This is not just random. We are now married. She's being reminded of God's hand in this. It also reminds us marriage is a pre-fall institution. It's how we fulfill the dominion mandate. Marriage produces family and culture. Earlier in verse 2, it talks of the mother's, of the the bride's mother. Do you notice that? Verse 2, just a real side application here now. Mothers, at the proper time and age, talk to your daughters about these things. They're touchy topics. They're getting catechized by either the world or the word of God. And we need to lovingly talk to them about sexuality, marriage, giving birth, nursing babies, training children. Same for dads and boys at the proper time. Fifth, love is friendship on fire. Look at verse 6. Death is the only image that can be compared to this kind of love. Remarkable. At its best, loved ones, every marriage begins with joy and celebration and ends with death and tragedy. My love for my wife, Colleen, will last until death by God's grace, and one day death will tear her from my side. One of us will stand there before the grave. Just as two people who enter the fierce grip of death do not emerge again, so too, having entered the equally powerful realm of love, the woman wants love to grip them forever. That's the point. She wants the relationship to remain exclusive, relentless in its undying jealousy. Do you see that? Some things in life are not meant to be shared. We often think of jealousy as a negative thing. And it is, kids, if you're jealous of your brother's car and you go rip it out of his hands. Or if you're jealous of your neighbor's really fancy bike and you go and you try to take it. That's bad jealousy. This is the kind of jealousy God has. He says in Exodus 34, the Lord, my name is jealous. I'm jealous for the worship of my people, for the glory of my name. Our God is passionate in love for his people. And according to the song, and also Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 11, there is an appropriate jealousy in marriage. The single-minded loyalty husband and wife have for each other. Now, you cannot and should not and never should think that you can be Jesus to your spouse. That's the other extreme. We cannot meet all the relational needs of our spouses. It would be folly to try. Friendship's important. Church community's important. But loving someone means that you have a unique relationship with your spouse. Your spouse holds your heart in a way that no one else does in this life. She goes on. She compares love to a flaming fire. See that? 
the fire, the flame of the Lord, the only mention of the Lord in this song. This is literally fire that is like a lightning strike. Lightning is a thousand times hotter than the sun. Passionate, persistent, persevering, priceless love. Where does it come from? It comes from God. It's a gift of God. The capacity to enjoy it is given to you by God. And like Ecclesiastes says, we are to enjoy the wife whom we love. Verse 7, many waters cannot quench this love. Neither can floods drown it. So this is a picture of love that is so strong that fire can exist when floods of water are poured on it. That's the picture. Does that make sense, kids? If you have a campfire in the backyard and you dump water on it with your bucket or your hose, what's going to happen to the fire? It's going to go out. But not this fire. Here's how one person puts it. Imagine the burning bush from Exodus at the bottom of the Red Sea with water all around it and the bush is still burning. That's the picture of love that's given. Persevering. Permanence. What kind of love is this? Well, loved ones, it's the love of friendship. The song says in chapter 5, this is my beloved, this is my friend. Trust and friendship are crucial in marriage. If you're single and you say, I can't trust him, don't marry him. If you're single and say, I don't think I want her to be my best friend for life, don't marry her. This kind of friendship is not infatuation. It's quiet, solid, agape, covenant love. Not lusting after our spouse, but loving them. Now, attraction's important, yes. Let's not pretend it's not. God gave you body and soul. He made you this way. But we don't marry someone just for good looks because those things will fade. They will not last. This is friendship on fire. This is not, I suppose I love my spouse. I'll write it down or think about it on Valentine's Day. This is, I love you with a burning love that is as strong as death and jealous as the grave. You think, I can't do that. No, you can't. By the Holy Spirit, this is what God does in our marriages to make us more like Jesus. We'll see that in a bit. This is enduring love. B.B. Warfield, professor at Princeton, late 1800s. At age 25, he and his wife were married. On their honeymoon, she was struck by lightning. She was paralyzed for the rest of her life. For the next 40 years, he cared for her. In all those years, he never left his home for more than a few hours at a time. That's what this is talking about. A man shared a story. It's a small church in Kansas. He said this is, in his mind, the greatest picture of agape covenant love he's seen. It was not of a young couple in sexual delight. It was not of a couple in their 40s who were great friends. Those things are wonderful. It was two old people in a nursing home. She had had a terrible stroke. She no longer recognized her husband. She spoke harsh words with him. He talked to her gently. He kept combing her hair. 
He kept telling her what he had told her for over 50 years. I love you, my darling. That's the love of covenant commitment. What if you're single today? What if you long to be married? Cultivate growing contentment in the Lord, patience, trust, and pursue marriage. Find someone who loves Jesus, who loves the church. Don't do missionary dating. Someone who wants to honor the Lord with their life, find them and, you know what? Go out on a date. Don't settle and just marry whoever's available. If you love someone enough to marry them, know this. You will inevitably, with that person, go through the turmoil of sickness and conflict and childbirth or the painful inability to have a child. You will go through many mutual and individual disappointments, brokenness, tears, sorrow, and ultimately death itself. Marriage is indeed, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Sixth, love cannot be bought. What's the message of this book? Covenant commitment, rock solid. White hot intimacy. They're both crucial in marriage. Where can you find this love? Where can you buy this love? How about the golf course? How about the hunting trip? How about the sports game? How about fishing? I love fishing. I love baseball games. Not a knock on those, but that's not where we're going to buy this love. In fact, this love is not for sale. Verse 7, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. This man would be a fool of fools to think that he could buy this love. That's what the culture says. You get what you pay for. Hollywood, how do you buy it? But there's no price tag. Love is free but not cheap. There's no trade for it. Its value is greater than any earthly possession. It's not for sale. This is a jab at Solomon, isn't it? He collected whatever his eyes desired. Pools, palaces, wine, women, gardens, gold. And he wanted this woman. Love cannot give things instead of itself. I'm going to say that again. Love cannot give things instead of itself. Love can only give itself. Not cheap and valuelessly. And this, this doesn't mean you can go home and never give your wife a gift. <laughs> but do you see the point? What does the woman decide? Song of Solomon 8, verse 11. Solomon has a vineyard. It's his harem. Baal Hamon, Lord of confusion, is what that means. Husband of a multitude. She has peace. She has security with her beloved. Solomon, what does he have? Confusion. Solomon tried. He lost. She's saying to Solomon, keep your money. I'm not going to be one of your concubines for a one-night stand. I don't want to be with you, Solomon, no matter how much wealth you have. She's joined in marriage with the beloved shepherd boy. She rejects Solomon, and in God's amazing grace, the Holy Spirit led Solomon to write virtuously of the love that escaped him. How does this apply to us? Here's a husband who's gone 17 hours a day, never comes home, 
The job has consumed him, away on business trips all the time. I'm not speaking of those who have certain seasons in life where you have to work long hours. But this guy's just doing that because he wants more money. There's a TV show. The man goes home, opens the door, his wife is there, and there's suitcases. She says to him, the job is not more important than our marriage. He says without a pause, it is more important than our marriage for now. But he's lost her. She goes to the cab and is gone. No job is worth losing your wife over. Wives, don't make him do it. Turn around and blame him when he does. Don't say, well, we don't have enough money. You've got to work more, and now you're destroying our marriage because you're working more. Don't, don't do that. We're all prone to covetousness. But don't say, I'm dissatisfied with everything in the house, the flooring, the kitchen. You've got to go make more money. I'm just not happy. Don't, don't live that way. Satan wants to destroy the church. One way is to try to destroy the marriages of God's people. But loved ones, marriage is not an end in itself. It's wonderful, but it's not ultimate. It's passing away like spring. Our bodies grow old and die. Spring turns to autumn and winter. Every pleasure has its pain. Every rose has its thorn, which is why the song lifts our eyes, finally, to the God who is love. The Song of Solomon reminds us of the Garden of Eden. It reminds us of sin. It reminds us of God coming to his people Israel in the wilderness and God dwelling with them in the tabernacle. And then of God raising up King Solomon and the temple being built and God's presence being with them in the temple and the temple itself being built. And what does it look like? It looks like the garden. Palm trees, flowers, cherubim, golden lampstands shaped like flowers. What's it teaching you? It's teaching us that all these things find fulfillment in Jesus and his people. The Bible is the record, the testimony of God's good news to us in Jesus. God coming down in grace by covenant to unite his people to himself in Jesus. And that's where this psalm points you. Yes, it talks of romance and intimacy. But it points to love that was made manifest among us in the incarnation of the Son of God. It points to love that was demonstrated to us when Jesus became the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sins. The incarnation reveals who love is. The Son of God became man. The atonement demonstrates what love does. Not all the wealth in the world could buy this love. Do you believe that, loved ones? But Jesus purchased the church not with stones and wealth, but with his own blood. In chapter 216, the song says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. This is about the story of Jesus coming to claim his bride, ultimately. In the wedding, the bride and groom say, All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. Jesus took all that is ours, sin, guilt, shame, judgment. We get all that is his, forgiveness, righteousness, glory, salvation, love. He burst the bonds of death. In verse 6, it says, love is as strong as death. In Jesus, love has conquered death. 
He rose from the dead. He emerged triumphant. He has done everything for you to win you as his bride. And loved ones, what does the bride want? What do you women, what do you want in your marriage? What do you want? You want him, don't you? Her beloved, that's what she wants. And it is the same with us. The benefit of union with Christ is Christ himself. Knowing and enjoying Christ, not just get out of hell, but enjoying Jesus and all that he is in his beauty and grace. Jesus is the beauty of all things beautiful. The song ends abruptly because it lifts our eyes to the return of Jesus. You don't have to be married to enjoy this because every longing, every experience and desire that we imperfectly experience now will only perfectly be experienced when we are with the Lord in the new heavens and new earth. The consummation of marriage looks to the ultimate consummation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Glorified, resurrected bodies, the new Jerusalem, the people of God, the bride of Christ, our capacity to experience satisfaction will increase. Our desires will increase. It was 1859. Presbyterian minister James Thornwell announced the wedding of his daughter, Nancy. In the weeks leading up to the event, hundreds of people would end up traveling not for a wedding, but for a funeral. She took ill from typhoid and died. Just before her death, Thornwell said, My dear daughter, such a tragedy. She replied, Father, do not weep. I know my Savior. He said, But this was to be your wedding. Your whole life is before you now. She, the youth, but with greater maturity, said, Father, but I now go to a greater groom that I am prepared to meet. Nancy Thornwell was laid to rest in a wedding gown, and the tombstone reads, as a bride prepared for his groom. Dear Christian, look forward to that day by faith in Jesus and the joy that awaits. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we long for that day when the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven from God as a bride prepared and adorned for her husband. That day when we will dwell with you, O God, and that you have promised you will be with us as our God, and we will be your people. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.